0: That's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia Pacific region. One might think that comparing civilizations as far removed in time and space as ancient Egypt and ancient China might not reveal much. Yet, Professor Tony Barbieri's Ancient Egypt and Early China State, Society, and Culture, published by the University of Washington Press earlier this year, gleans much from a deeply researched comparison of political structures, diplomatic relations, legal systems, ideas of the afterlife, and other aspects. In other words, despite being separated by thousands of years and thousands of kilometers, the proto-empires of Egypt and China have a surprising amount of things in common. Anthony J. Barberi Lowe is professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara. His book, *Artisans in Early Imperial China, won top prizes from the Association for Asian Studies, American Historical Association, College Art Association, and International Convention of Asia Scholars. Today, Professor Barbieri and I will talk about the various similarities and differences between these two ancient civilizations and what we can learn from engaging in such a comparative study. So, Professor Barbieri, thank you so much for joining me today. Maybe it's best to start with, in some ways, why the book um, is framed in the way you frame it. Uh, why make the comparison between ancient Egypt and ancient China in the first place?
2: Yeah, so thanks for inviting me on. Um, so, comparative study is a really old practice. This has gone on since the early 18th century, uh, people comparing ancient civilizations. And, you know, in the early 20th century, it was very common to bring all the ancient civilizations into a large comparative study to look at sort of universal aspects of human history. Uh, This was done by historians like, you know, Arnold Toynbee or Oswald Spengler, um, but also by anthropologists as well, like Carl Wittfogel. Um, And they were looking for universal patterns or sort of laws of civilization. But in many ways, they went too far. And it's very hard to make sort of unassailable laws about human behavior or human society. And so there was a, a reaction against this. Um, in the 50s and 60s and 70s um, to these sort of grand civilizational comparisons. Um, But starting in probably the 90s, I would say, this started to move in the other direction, and we started to get concerted and very methodical ways of of comparing, first, ancient China and ancient Greece, uh, where they're looking at the origins of science or comparisons of philosophy And then I would say in the last 20 years, ancient Rome uh, being compared to ancient China, looking at state power and elements of of statecraft and finance. Um, But I always felt that that Egypt was a more appropriate comparison. Um, And even though they seem so vastly different, Egypt always seems a, a sort of archaic society, a world apart, mystical, distant um, there's a lot of similarities, structural similarities between New Kingdom Egypt and early imperial China that I thought could really bring out some of the what I call the flavor and texture of each. Uh, by sort of putting them against each other, we can sort of play them off each other and reveal things both in the comparison and the contrast between the two.
0: I guess that's, that's right, because I think kind of in our, you can call it popular, semi-popular conception, Egypt always feels like it's a step before civilizations like China and Rome and Greece. Um, when in fact, I think you note that they're actually kind of in very similar stages of political development, um, development as, as proto-empires, et cetera.
2: Yeah. So Egypt was the first or one of the first along with Mesopotamia. And so even though, you know, I'm comparing a time period in Egypt, which is a thousand years before the Han dynasty of China. It's about the same amount of time after the rise of the state, and so they've reached about the same level of maturity in terms of uh, sort of imperial political structures. So, one of your
0: initial comparisons revolves around the fact that both Egypt and China were kind of centered around rivers and managing, you know, the flooding of rivers. Uh, How did that lead to similar political structures, and inversely? Uh, how did the differences between the Nile and the Yellow River affect each civilization's political development?
2: Yeah, so this, this is sort of a loaded chapter in that it revives some of the ideas of Karl Wittfogel, uh, who uh, very controversially in the 30s, 40s, and 50s had this idea of sort of what he called hydraulic civilizations or oriental despotism, uh, to use his phrase, uh, where he believed that the earliest states were all formed around these bodies of water like the Nile and the Yellow River or the Tigris and the Euphrates, and they led to a certain type of governance, which he believed was despotic uh, and controlling and limiting of of personal freedoms, things like that, a particular sort of Asiatic mode of production, uh, to use the Marxist term. And this was discredited in later years, but I I decided that it wasn't necessary to throw the baby out with the bathwater or the irrigation water, as I pun in the book. Um, And that there's something to these ideas of Wittfogel if we go through it carefully. And so I look at the Nile and the Yellow River at three different levels. Um, I look at them as sort of natural landscapes, the actual hydrological system of them. I look at them as political landscapes, how the, the politics arose based on these river systems. And then look at them as ritual landscapes and how the nature of the sacrifices or the deities of the river, the gods of the river, Uh, were basically in parallel with the nature of the river themselves. And what I found was that the the two rivers are very different in the nature of their flooding. And this is where the the crucial difference comes in. The Nile floods benignly and predictably 80 or 90% of the time. And it leads to a, a sort of benign governance where the The gods, the gods of the river bring the flood each year and it leads to great harvests. Um, Whereas in China, the Yellow River is very unpredictable. Droughts are very common and the river floods disastrously uh, where where it can kill millions of people in a matter of hours Uh, in modern times, especially uh, in the 20th century. This has happened. So that led to a sort of a different regime of sacrifice, of human sacrifice, of terror at the power of the river to end people's lives. But the similarity came in the nature of how the kings identified themselves with the river. In both societies, the king portrayed himself as the one who controlled the waters, as the one who brought the prosperity, who could keep back the flood in China or bring the flood in the case of Egypt. And so the Pharaoh in Egypt and the king in China Tied their political fortunes, their legitimation to the flooding of the river. And this was, of course, a mixed blessing because when it worked well, people believed their ideology, they adhered to the dynasty. But when the river in Egypt stopped flooding or the river in China flooded disastrously, they lost faith in the divine legitimation of these kings. And the result being, you know, regime change.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, your, your book includes a, a map of. How much the yellow river has changed course over time and it really is quite striking to see i guess the as you would say the kind of destructive power of the river as it would radically change course
2: yeah i think i refer to it as an untended garden hose uh the last the last bit of the yellow river um has has shifted dramatically um many times including during the song dynasty where it led to massive problems and chaos um, and in the 20th century Of course, uh, during the war between the nationalists and the communists, where it was intentionally uh, broken um, by the nationalist forces, leading to massive loss of life. Um, So, you know, this river has incredible power, but it also can be, of course, uh, brought under control with enormous expense to to build these massive dikes that hold it back Um, does lead to some stability, but it's a it's a trap. It's a technological trap because it requires more and more input of labor and money to keep back the water by making the dikes higher and higher. And eventually they must fail. But when they fail, it will be catastrophic because of the height. They can be, you know, 20, 30 feet above the surrounding countryside.
0: So then as as your book continues, you start looking into some of the comparisons between uh, China and Egypt's legal systems, also how they... Um, let's say, conduct diplomacy with nearby states, nearby vassals, Uh, what did you uncover, um, both specifically in terms of uh, interesting stories from both of these civilizations, but also from the comparison between them?
2: Yeah. So for the chapter on empire and diplomacy, um, I was very interested in both of these uh, situations because in each case, uh, early Imperial China and New Kingdom Egypt um, had sort of gone abroad they had formed imperial territories beyond their normal cultural bounds. Uh, for Egypt, that was going into Palestine, Israel, Syria, um, and far into the south to where Sudan is now. And in the case of China, that was going far into the Northwest, um, you know, into what's now Xinjiang and areas like that. And in each case, they both ran into logistical limits. They, they couldn't administer those territories the way they administered their home territories. And so in both cases, they developed a system of client states or vassal states, which were maintained with these complex diplomatic uh, mechanisms, including marriage diplomacy. And it's within the marriage diplomacy that I found the most interesting differences. Uh, in the Chinese case, the Chinese emperor married off his daughter, or someone who he said was his daughter, um, usually it was from a collateral branch of the royal family, married these girls to foreign chieftains uh, to form alliances, uh, hoping that the the child, the son of this union, would then give deference to him as his grandfather. Uh, In the Egyptian case, they refused to ever give their daughters to foreign kings, uh, but instead they wanted the daughters of foreign kings to come into Egypt where they would become part of the harem, and these other foreign kings wanted in exchange massive amounts of gold, which Egypt had in abundance.
0: Right, and that sounds like a, a system that kind of reflects the, I, I guess you'd call it today the geopolitical situation of these two, um, of of these two proto empires.
2: Yes, and and there are some amazing documents that survive, so we wouldn't be able to reconstruct this system except for the fact that we have actual letters diplomatic letters exchanged between the kings of Egypt and some of the states of the Near East, like Babylon uh, and the Hittites, and in China between the Chinese emperor and the Xiongnu head, the the Shanyu or Hanyu. Um, And so we have some of these letters that actually survive. And so we can see that the diplomatic maneuvering was very similar. They referred to each other as brothers. Uh, They gave each other lavish gifts repeatedly. They, They married their daughters And all of this was part of a sort of diplomatic dance that involved treaty negotiations and border disputes. Uh, But it was always framed under the the sort of framework of family, Uh, because there was no such thing as international law or sort of international conventions. The only way that you could really frame this in the ancient world was as family. And so these were your, your brother states, you would call them.
0: I will know in, in, in the course of your, in, of your research and I guess in looking through all of these documents, you uncover some, some great stories. And I wonder if you might um, tell us the story about uh, the, the case of the stolen shirts and the oracle.
2: Yeah. So in the chapter on, on legal cases, we're fortunate to have some legal cases that survive from both societies that narrate the plight of very common people who get ensnared in the legal system. And I use this as a way to sort of get to the fundamental principles of each legal system, and to see how they differ. Um, so when I look at ordinary robbery or ordinary theft, um, in the the Chinese case, I look very quickly at an example of a couple, a guy who stole a cow and and who gets uh, tortured and and convicted, but he also fingers his friend who wasn't involved, and they both appeal their case from prison. Um, and and the one person actually has an alibi, so he gets off. And I compare this to this, uh, this, this laborer, this very lowly servant in Egypt. And he didn't have any possessions. Someone stole two of his shirts. And, you know, in the Egyptian village where he lived, uh, there was a local court that was made up of the village elders. And you could go to that court and they would interrogate you and they'd probably beat you even if you were the person that brought the accusation and they would bring in other witnesses or you had to bring them in yourself and they would beat them too. Um, But for him, he didn't want to go to this court because I think he suspected that the person who stole his shirts was the daughter of the village chief, uh, one of the chief foremen of the crew who, um, who would be on that tribunal. And so in Egypt, there was always a second way you could go. You could, beseech the gods for an answer. You could go to the oracle of the god. And in this case, the god was a statue of a deified pharaoh who had died a century earlier. And he could go to this god and uh, the statue was carried by a bunch of priests and he could ask him for an answer and the god would would bow at a certain point. But he even brought a sorcerer with him. And this uh, sorcerer, then named each of the houses in the village. And eventually the statue of the god held by the priest would dip forward saying, yes, that's who stole your shirts. And when they got to the daughter of the village elder, uh, the statue dipped. And indeed, it was said that she was the one who stole his shirts. And so this is the way he could sort of get at a someone in power and get compensated without going through the standard court system. Now, in Egypt, the the penalty for such a thing was just compensation. The person would have to reimburse you up to three times the value of the stolen goods. But there was no prison for this. There was no hard labor camp, no mutilating punishments. Uh, The system in China was much, much more rigorous. Uh, There were police catchers and and, and, thief catchers and police network all throughout the country. They were actively looking for criminals if you committed a crime of this level, uh, you would probably be fined 100 times the value and you might be put into a labor camp for three to five years where you would probably die of malnutrition and overwork. And so the Chinese system was very proactive in, in seeking out criminals for even the smallest crimes and filling their prison camps, which were used to build the Chinese empire in terms of city walls and the Great Wall and and all these massive constructions were not built by slaves, but mostly by convicted criminals guilty of things like robbery
1: and low level assault. Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off. So in one chapter, you make a
0: comparison between uh, between Akhenaten and Wang Mang, two politicians who took over during periods of imperial decay, tried radical changes to the status quo, only to be toppled. Um, could you first explain kind of who these two people were, and then of course what you again learn from the comparison of their of their stories.
2: Yeah, this is a case where, you know, I was challenged by a colleague. He said, I dare you to compare Akhenaten to Wangmong uh, because he doubted that, that this comparison would work. And so I took that as a challenge because Akhenaten, who was originally called Amenhotep IV, was one of the last pharaohs of the 18th dynasty of New Kingdom Egypt, uh, when the empire was starting to crumble um, and had been beset by Uh, interest groups like the temple and the army and other groups that were sort of taking power away from the central uh, imperial government. And Akhenaten has been known as a religious reformer. He is famous uh, for the last 150 years. uh, He's been known um, as this person who declared there was only one god and all the other gods uh, were were not to be followed. It was only the disk of the sun, the sun god Aten, uh, who would be worshiped and he moved the capital, built a brand new capital um, and took all the resources that used to belong to those temples and used it uh, to build his new city. Now, Wang Mang was a cousin of one of the Han emperors, but he belonged to this sort of family that sort of married into the royal family. And he and his uncles had been prime ministers for generations um, and they sort of ruled the country. Wang Meng went further than that, and he basically manufactured a consensus that he should take over from the Han dynasty. And he declared the Han dynasty over. They had lost the mandate of heaven, and he founded his new dynasty, literally the new dynasty, the Xin dynasty, um, in 9 AD and attempted to completely reform uh, politics and ritual uh, based on what he thought was a return... To the past, to the golden age. And they both failed. And they both failed after about the same amount of time. Um, and so putting these two next to each other allowed me to examine them in a different framework. So rather than look at Akhenaten as, oh, he's the religious heretic, uh, or look at Wangmong, oh, he's just the failed Confucian reformer, looking at them in this broader framework of empires in decline, uh, empires that have passed their peak. They've ossified, they've become unable to adapt, they're no longer expanding. And these guys are trying to reform things to try to get back to the good old days. And they both fail uh, for very similar reasons.
0: Now I was gonna I was gonna note, I think, in given my very say, cursory knowledge of, of ancient Egyptian history, um, I remember my view of Akhenaten kind of as a kid reading, I guess, pop history about Egypt was that Akhenaten was, um, the one who was nuts, the one who was, uh, basically <laughs> set himself up as this new religion with him at, at the head with the one God. And he was, I think, I think the popular view of him is that he was, I guess, semi, semi crazy, but your book actually puts forward, I think a different, um, interpretation of his behavior in the context of, um, I guess, Egypt's decline.
2: Right. So I'm teaching a class on Akhenaten, actually, in a couple of weeks. So Akhenaten is a fascinating figure. Uh, More has been written about him than anyone who lived before Julius Caesar, let's say. Um, So early on, when people saw pictures of Akhenaten, they saw a misshapen man. Uh, They saw a man who they thought had some sort of disease. Uh, Was it hydrocephalus? Was it Marfan syndrome or Froelich syndrome? Was he hermaphrodite? And they thought that he was diseased in some way, and that only this could explain his insanity, his insanity for throwing out the whole Egyptian religious system, for moving the capital to the middle of the desert. Um, But these are all, of course, based on their interpretation of these statues that were found uh, in the early 20th century, where his appearance is very distorted. But other statues of him look perfectly normal. And now it's believed that these sort of distorted statues were making a certain point about religion and his association with the gods. He looked supernatural. Uh, he had both male and female characteristics like the gods of heaven and earth. And so he didn't actually look like this you know, crazy individual that people predict. So I put him more as a political uh, theorist and someone who is thinking um, about how to get away from the power of these interest groups that are constraining his action. Um, Early on, people called him the first individual in history, uh, the first person to ever create a religion from scratch. But how innovative he truly was uh, is debatable. He was following trends which had already begun during his father's reign to sort of return the pharaoh to divine status. Uh, to go back to the old kingdom when the pharaoh was a god king. Um, So Akhenaten decided that he would be the only intermediary between the people and the only god. So in a sense, this wasn't just a religious reformation. This was also a political coup uh, in which all power, religious and secular, would be centralized in one intermediary, him. So I'd like to talk about
0: maybe one more comparison that the book makes, which is... Uh, it's study of how each civilization understood the afterlife. I think especially ask the question of, you know, what kind of motivated each civilization's understanding of, of paradise. Could you go a bit further into how ancient Egyptians, and ancient Chinese kind of understood the afterlife, how they maybe did rituals around the afterlife, um, some of the ways they buried their dead, at, at, et cetera. Kind of, kind of what do you learn from that comparison?
2: Yeah. So for the afterlife, I had to give a caveat, of course, in the book that, that, even Egypt isn't a unified cultural domain. Egypt is hundreds of miles long. There's sort of different traditions, but it's more unified than China. In China, we have lots of different cultural traditions, especially in the north versus the south um, and even parts of the northeast versus the southwest. Um, But there are certain traditions we can see in the Han that mirror some of the things we see in, in New Kingdom Egypt. So one of the things in Egypt that is has been noted by religious historians for years is the notion of an ethical afterlife. This idea that the afterlife is only for the pure. Um, So it's only for those people who know the right spells, who know the right charms, but also whose heart is pure and they haven't committed adultery. They haven't killed anyone. And so in Egypt to get into paradise, your heart is literally weighed on a scale in front of Osiris, the god of the underworld. And if your heart is heavily laden with guilt and sin, then you will be destroyed forever. Your soul will be devoured by this creature. If your heart is light, you will go on to paradise. And their paradise was a beautiful lush land full of rivers and streams where you would uh, be able to have sex there forever. You'd be able to have unlimited food. You could see your lost relatives. It was literally a paradise, and this is the first evidence we have in anywhere in the world of this notion of a paradisical realm for the worthy. And you know, of course, this also later shows up in in Iranian religions and in Christianity and other places, but this is the first time it shows up. Now in China, originally, of course, the afterlife was only for the king and for the elite. We didn't know what the common people believed they could get because they didn't write it down. but by the Han dynasty, we start to get evidence that the people believed in a paradise as well. And this paradise was in the far northwest. And it was ruled over by the queen mother of the west, Xi Wangmu. And in this paradise, there were also tall trees and bountiful food and jade, you know, jade bushes everywhere. And this was, you know, a paradise that everyone wanted to go to. And but you had to get the queen's permission and you would pray to the queen. You put images in her in the tomb of her and beseech her. And there was even a panic in in 3 B.C. where people thought the end of the world was coming. And this queen was going to signal the coming of paradise. And people ran through the streets naked and dancing and, and thought that this end of the world was coming. And this is all before Buddhism. This is before Buddhism comes to China. And brings a very Indian notion of the afterlife, heaven, and hell uh, that come with India, which is also a very ethical notion. So I wanted to compare these two. And what I found was most striking was the idea of board games. And so we think of board games as you know, a fun pastime. You roll a random throw of the dice. You get to win or lose. But in both Egypt and China, there were board games that could help you get to paradise. They could give you a shortcut. Uh, So I call it gaming the way to paradise. Uh, In Egypt, this board game was called Senet and involved two players going against each other. But you also see it depicted in tombs where the tomb owner is playing against Osiris, the god of the dead. And if you win the game, you also get to go to paradise, just like the weighing of the heart. And in China, um, this board game was called Liobo or six sticks. And this is also shown next to the Queen Mother of the West in tombs where people are playing this game with the suggestion that I make is that if you can win this game, it shows that in the afterlife, you will get to go to paradise.
0: So I'd like to maybe move away from from the content of the book and maybe talk about the process of writing it, some of the bigger picture, maybe questions about it. So first of all, un- unless I'm kind of misunderstanding your your background... You are primarily a scholar of China and East Asia. Was it interesting to explore an entirely different uh, civilization, an entirely different proto-empire in ancient Egypt?
2: Yes, it was, in- it was incredibly fun. Um I had a- always brought in comparative studies in my work in my earlier books, but I felt inadequately prepared to write a major book comparing two civilizations unless I could read the texts. And understand the archaeology of the other society. And so I got the opportunity back in 2013 to 2016 to go back to graduate school basically and get retrained in Egyptology. And so I spent three years at UCLA learning to read hieroglyphs, read these texts, learn the archaeology um, so that I could really get a good grounding uh, in ancient Egypt. And that's what made me feel confident enough to, to really bring this book out uh, because I was a little too insecure before that I didn't want to make an incorrect statement because using translations is, is very dicey sometimes um, because you're, you're basically parroting the interpretation of a translator. So I wanted to be able to go to these original legal cases, uh, the original rituals about, let's say, the Nile, um, and I wanted to read these in these original texts so that I didn't fall into whatever interpretation the translator would bring in. And so, yeah, those three years were fantastic. I also got to go to Egypt and uh, all the you know museums in Europe that had Egyptian collections and do research, and so that's what gave birth to this book.
0: So you kind of get into this at at the very first question I asked in this interview, Um, but I think you note in the introduction to your book that people have in recent times kind of largely avoided this sort of kind of broad cross regional, cross temporal comparisons. but what do you think we we gain kind of from a big picture standpoint from doing these kinds of comparative studies?
2: One of the things we gain is taking our blinders off. Uh, when we just study ancient China or just study ancient Egypt, we start to fall into patterns where we think, oh, this is characteristically Chinese or this is characteristically Egypt. Uh, we become essentializing. Um, and what this book allowed me to do was to see Okay, there are certain things that are not uniquely Chinese. These are structural similarities that all societies in a certain political evolutionary framework will come to these solutions. But then there are other things that are particular to China or to Egypt. And these arise out of cultural background in terms of marriage practices, like the marriage diplomacy, um, or certain environmental factors, like the Nile and the Yellow River. And so I wanted to separate out. What are the structural similarities that are common to all early empires like this? And what are the historical particularities that actually give us the flavor and texture of how they're different? So with that,
0: thank you for listening to your interview with Anthony J. Barberi Lowe, author of Ancient Egypt and Early China, State, Society, and Culture. Professor Barberi, I actually have one more question. Yeah. Uh, Where can people find your work, and what's next for you?
2: Yeah, so this particular book, as well as all my other books, are you know available online as eBooks or or regular books. Um, My next book will be coming out very soon, actually, about uh, nine or ten months from now, but it should be on order late this fall, and it's called "The Many Lives of the First Emperor of China," and it is a book about Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of Qin, and it looks at the first emperor through a variety of lenses, including archaeology, but also um, popular culture, movies, comics, video games, uh, as well as traditional historical texts, and looks at the first emperor as sort of a blank ideological slate upon which you know, movie directors, the historians, archaeologists can sort of write their own fears and fantasies um, about their own contemporary age. And so this book will be coming out uh, next spring. And uh, I hope to maybe talk to you again about it at that time.
0: Well, it sounds very interesting, especially um, I'd wanna, I want to learn more about how Qin Shi Huang is portrayed in video games, kind of what skills and characteristics they, they give him as a character.
2: Um, yeah. It's very interesting. And, and I even compare video games and movies that are produced in the West versus those that are produced in China, and they have a very different narrative. So, you can follow me,
0: Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at nickri Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. Uh, the Asian Review Books podcast is on all your favorite podcast apps Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, and share us with your friends if you want to support us continuing to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Jeevan Vasagar, author of Lion City, Singapore, and the Invention of Modern Asia. But before then, Professor Barberi, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for the interview. That, it was great fun.